TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Welcome to Spill It. Spillet is true stories told in front of a live audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? Hey guys, this is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spillet Podcast. Recently, we held our Spillet All Stars edition, where we brought back some of our favorite storytellers to share stories. In this episode, you will hear stories from Mitchell Grimm, Sean Mosley, and Beth Shelton. Enjoy. Our first storyteller tonight. Is um, has told multiple stories, uh, has uh, always uh, always enjoyed his stories, and he's actually telling one of my favorite stories tonight. So everybody, let's give it up for Mitchell Grimm. Hi, my name's Mitch. Um, and when we workshopped this, originally I was going to, tell my coming to Memphis story, which, which I call welcome to Memphis, motherfucker. Um, but then I thought about the fact that we're at a brewery and one of my favorite stories is the story of the best beer that I've ever had. Um, so I want to tell you about the best beer I've ever had. And to get into that first, um, when you look at me or, or anyone, you can make some assumptions or, or tend to make assumptions about a person based on what you see and what you hear. Um, and when you're looking at me, if you don't already know me, you probably are not making the assumption that I'm a former member of a Mexican drug cartel. Um, but I am. And... Because of that, I got to spend a long time in prison. And that started when I was captured in Mexico. Um, so I got to start 12 and a half years of incarceration in a Mexican prison. And I spent six and a half years there before being extradited up here. Um, and you, when you hear Mexican prison, people get kind of freaked out about all the violence and all the drugs and, and, and sen sensationalized depictions. And a lot of those are true. Um, but you also don't know or don't get to see a lot of how the Mexican justice system compares to the U.S. justice system, and I've got to experience both of those. And, and I'll say the Mexican system is a more humane experience. Um, so while I was in this prison in Chihuahua, Mexico, um, I had really bad sciatica, um, 
and I don't know if anyone else here has had sciatica or if you know about sciatica, but it is amazingly painful. Um, it's, it's a debilitating condition when it, when it really gets you. Um, so I used to go to medical at, in the prison, I'd go to medical a lot. Um, and it took more than a year and a half of going and complaining about this pain to get effective attention. Um, you know, at first every, everything there, their, their first thought is, Oh, it's drug seeking behavior. Um, but it, well, there's a whole nother story of, of how they came to believe that I actually was in all that pain. But, but the upshot is, um, ultimately they came to realize that I truly was in significant pain and they prescribed physical therapy for me. Um, so a couple of things to know about Mexican prison before I start talking about physical therapy. Number one is we wore our own clothes. So we didn't have khaki uniforms or, or any kind of uniforms. Um, they tried it for a minute and it just, uh, well, there's a story about that too. Um, so I dressed for visits or, or for some time when I would want to look nice, I would dress like this. Um, and another thing to know is in that prison, we had money. We had cash, you know, real, we had Mexican pesos or, or dollars. Um, so we could buy and sell things within the prison for, for real money. So those, those are important tidbits for this story. Um, so I was prescribed this physical therapy, and, and that took place outside the prison um, at, at what's called the, the Directorate for the Family Integration, which is kind of like uh, oh, Social Security here, but on a state level. And they have a big clinic, um, similar to like an outbuilding at a major hospital, um, offices and small clinics, built around a, a little mall kind of courtyard area, two-floor place. Um, so for about two months on Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would load me in a, in a little government car with two armed guards, and they would take me to physical therapy. And, and it worked, and, and that was... That was pretty cool. Plus I got to get outside of the prison, which was very cool. Um, so on one of these occasions, the guards that were assigned to take me to my physical therapy were assigned on that day to take me because they'd shown up to work drunk and the shift commander on duty wanted them out of the warden's line of sight and the best way to do that was to give them something to do away from the prison so these two drunk guards <laughs> load me into this Nissan Sentra they put their guns in the back seat um, <laughs> and, and you know it, it makes it sound like Keystone Cops and it's really not um, I had been there for a long time I had changed a lot. Um, I was, I, 
am a very different person today um, than I was before all of this happened. And, and a big part of that change had already taken place. Um, so I, I was a trusted inmate. Um, and I had a lot of privilege because of that. Um, but still, that was stupid to, to put the guns in the back seat with me. That was stupid. Um, so we go to the clinic and we walk in and, I, you know, as soon as we, we would get away from the prison, they would take the handcuffs off me because that was kind of shitty for me to drive around like that. And they were cool. Um, but when we would get to the, the clinic, they didn't put the cuffs back on me, but, you know, they both had their guns and were, were to either side of me. Um, and we would go sit in a waiting room with them on either side of me. And, and I'm dressed like this. And by then I, I knew the receptionist and, and of course my therapist, but we sat and waited and finally they called me in. Um, and, and in fact, we were, we were way early because the commander had sort of shooed us away from the prison because he wanted those two guards out of sight. Um, but they called me in, and I had my therapy, and the, the therapy was pretty cool. It was like they would put these electrodes on my back, like these pads on my shoulders and, and other pads on my butt, and they would run these electrical currents through it, and it, it would feel like a massage. Um, pretty cool. I'm, I'm not sure how scientific it is, but it felt great. Um, so I had my therapy, and that lasted about 45 minutes. And, you know, there was only one way into the therapy room and one way out into the, the waiting room. So I came back out into the waiting room and the guards were gone. <laughs> and the receptionist is looking at me like I could see her like tensing up. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, you don't have to worry. I, I speak Spanish. Um, so, uh, I won't do it here, but um, told her, you know, you don't have to worry. I'm just going to go look for my bodyguards, and, and then we'll be out of your hair. And I kind of walked around the, the courtyard area in the downstairs of this building looking for these guys, and then I figured they're probably out back where the car was parked smoking. Um, and I went out the back door, didn't see them, but... But right in front of the driveway into the place is a, ta a taxi cab stand. And there's a cabbie sitting there. And he's looking at me like, and, and I'm, now my mind is just racing. Um, at this point, I'd been in prison for about three and a half years on a 10-year sentence there. Um, And I had about $300 in my pocket, too, so I could take a pretty good cab ride. Um, and I'm just, stuff is spinning through my head, like, okay, if I did take off, um, you know, I, I was wanted here in the U.S., so it wasn't like I could make a run to the border and, and <laughs> come here. Um, and I had a, a business partner in Mexico City, and a, 
and we had like had joking conversations about if I escaped, I would go down there and and hide out in plain sight in Mexico City. And and I'm thinking, okay, in real life, um, how long is this guy going to want to harbor a fugitive? And and probably not very long. Um, so I'm. I was really like, get in the cab. Don't get in the cab. Um, and finally, I just decided no. You know, I'm, at at that time there was no parole for my particular crime. I was I was sentenced for transporting marijuana, and there was no parole for transporting, and it was a minimum ten year sentence. But there was talk about parole and and sentencing reform, and. There was a lot of hope that within two or three years there was going to be parole, and and that would be about the time I would be up for parole. And and do I want to mess that up? Um, and and so I continued walking around the inside of this building, and 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 I went upstairs to the second floor, and I'm looking for the guys, um, and I'm and I'm thinking about. trying to be a fugitive. I'd, I'd been a fugitive, and it's not fun. Um, but being in prison's not fun either. Um, didn't find the guys upstairs, so I walked back downstairs, and I thought I would look out the front side of the building and didn't see them. But there's another cabbie sitting there. <laughs> and I'm like, geez, you know. And a year from now or two years from now, um, am I going to be in prayer? Um, I, I was a pretty devout Catholic. Um, am I going to be in prayer saying, God, please let me out of prison? And I'm going to hear a voice saying, my son, you asked to get out of prison, and I sent you two taxis. <laughs> and and I just... I, I, couldn't make myself get in the taxi. Um, but by this time, there had been enough adrenaline going, and, and, and I had been worked up enough. I, like, I really just had to pee so bad. And I went in the bathroom, and there are the guards with a 40 in a paper bag, <laughs> pounding this 40. And they looked at me, and they're like, oh, you're done. Well, I guess we can go back to the prison now. And I said, no, 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 no. You guys are drinking a beer. I want a beer. No, it's getting late. We got to get you back to the prison. I said, look, number one, we're way early. They're not expecting us back there for an hour and a half to two hours. I said, number two, if you take me straight back to the prison and don't get me a beer on the way, I'm going to tell the warden that you guys are drunk and you're both going to get fired. So we went to OXO, which is like the 7-Eleven of Chihuahua. And they parked around the side because they didn't want their car to be seen. And they were like, okay, go in and buy some beer and come back. <laughs> so I trotted into OXO and pulled out a, a six-pack of Dos Equis lager and a pack of lime salt and went up to the counter. And I'm thinking, I could really fuck with these guys and tell the clerk to call the cops because I think I'm about to get kidnapped. 
but I paid for my, my beer and lime salt and got back in the car and we drove to an, uh, like a vacant lot, a construction lot. And it was maybe this time of the year, maybe a little bit later, probably mid-May. Beautiful weather, 70, 75 degrees, sunny, breezy. And we pulled up some cinder blocks and sat out in this vacant lot. And we each drank two Dos Equis lagers. And after my second beer, they, they were like, do you want to go back for some more? And I said, <laughs> I said, one more beer and people are going to know that I'm drunk when we get back to the prison. I said, no, I'm good. Um, you can take me back now. And that was the best beer that I've ever had. So our next person, it's his wife's birthday, so he insisted he has to go second. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, a slam winner, not a grand slam winner, no, but uh, multiple uh, spillets and center stages, a uh, featured storyteller, our last slam event. So he is truly an all-star. Sean Mosley, everybody. Can't get it. I can't. It's also the Super Bowl for the Detroit Lions, where I'm from, from Michigan. It's a big night tonight. Um, the draft. Um, they make rules for a reason, and that reason is most likely for young and dumb people. And once upon a time, I was both of those things, young and dumb. And now I'm probably just dumb. Um, when I was like 19 years old, I foolishly decided to take a job at a juvenile detention center. Um, I needed a job, but it wasn't the smartest decision because those types of jobs are more fitting for people with like type A personalities and my personality is like type Z. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to argue with anybody. I don't want to tell people to shut up and all of those different things. I don't want to tell people what to do. I just want to go with the flow. And working at a juvenile, that is not very conducive. But I took the job anyway and it's had a, a medium security juvenile facility, which basically means that we're somewhere in the middle of the woods with no fences or anything like that. We're just out there in a scattered amount of cabins and some other buildings or whatever. And I'm scared to death because I know like what the job entails, but I know that I'm not gonna be able to do it. And we have like two weeks worth of training and I'm just taking everything in, like hoping that they're going to give me some kind of golden nugget to make me into a type A personality so I can do this job well. And it is not working. Um, I end up uh, shadowing this guy. His name uh, was Daniels. His last name was Daniels. You have to call everybody by their last name. And so I was Mosley. 
supposed to be Mr. Mosley, but everybody just called me Mosley or Mose. And one day I'm working with Daniels and he drops a great nugget on me. And he's like, I'm going to tell you, Mosley, it's like this. These kids, they're just a bunch of punks. They don't want to fight. They don't want to do nothing. I tell them, I give you 60 seconds and y'all can fight it out. And you know what happened, Mosley? Every single time they back down. And I'm just soaking it in like, really, Daniels? Is that really what, it, what happens? He's like, yes. I was like, okay. I'm going to put that in the back of my mind just in case I need that ever. And my training session was over, and we start the job. And they were very wise. They put me on a, a third shift schedule, which means that I'm only supposed to come in at like 10 o'clock at night. And when I get there... The second shift should have put all the kids, should have got them all in bed, and they're just supposed to sleep and be quiet. And in the morning, we wake up. I mean, they wake up, and we go to breakfast and something else for like two hours, and then I'm done. So really, basically, I'm only supposed to deal with kids for like two hours. And I was like, yes. And I start the job, and it's nothing like that. I get there every single night in this utter chaos. Like nobody's in the bed. Like they're talking. They're doing all of these other different things. And then like when the second shift leaves, I'm the only person there. The rule is, is like when they're woke and walking around, you got to have at least two people. But when they're asleep and supposed to be in a bed, you only need one person. So now I'm stuck in a small room with 16 other boys that are probably only like three or four years younger than me. Some of them are bigger than me, and it's just me in there by myself. I'm trying to tell them, please go to bed. Please be quiet. Stop it, please. You're going to get me in trouble. And, and since I'm the low man on the totem pole, I don't get to build a rapport with one group of kids. They keep moving me everywhere. Every night I come to work, I'm in a different place. And on Fridays, I do go to a specific place, but I hate going there. It's a cabin called the Lions, and I hate the Lions. <laughs> They're terrible. They're the worst group out of them all. They're the most rambunctious, and every Friday night I get sent there. And there's this one kid in there. He doesn't fit in with anybody. He's the weirdest kid I think I probably ever met. His name is Rayvon, and every Friday night I come in there, he asks me the same question. He's like, Mose, you know what day it is? And I'm like, like the first time I was like, yeah, man, it's Friday. He was like, no, Mosley, it's Fifi Friday. <laughs> and um, from the looks on your face, I can tell you don't know what a Fifi is. And so I'm sorry that you're eating, but I'm going to explain it to you just a little bit. I'm not fully. So basically, a Fifi is the kids, they would go and grab like a rubber glove. They would steal it from the kitchen, and then they would place it inside a sock and squirt lotion in it. And I think you could put the rest together. Teenage boys. There you go. And every Friday night, same thing. Mosey, know what day it is? Fifi Friday. He would do it so many times that after a while he even made a song about it. Fee, fee, Friday. Fee, fee, Friday. 
he started getting other kids to sing the song with him. One night I came in on a Tuesday. I had to go in there. And you know what he said? Mosley, you know what day it is? I was like, no, not this time, Rayvon. It's not even Friday. He was like, every night is Fifi Friday. <laughs> Teenage boys, they're disgusting. One night, one Friday, I get sent into the, the lion's cabin. And I know immediately that something is wrong because everybody is dead silent. And I'm like, oh, no, what's going on? Did somebody die? Did somebody run away? And I start counting the kids like, oh, man, okay, they're all here. And then I noticed like there's this one kid. uh, He's sitting not in his bed, but he's sitting on his like footlocker. They're in bunk beds, and he's on the bottom bunk, and he's sitting on the footlocker, and he's making me very nervous. And the reason why he's making me very nervous is because 90% of the kids in the camp are inner-city kids from Detroit. And these inner-city kids, they've been through a lot of things, like stealing cars, selling drugs, drive-bys. But one thing that they don't deal with is wild animals, And so I don't have to worry about them running. But this kid that's sitting on his uh, footlocker, he's a white kid. And they go camping and stuff. And they don't have a problem (laughs) with going out into the wild. And so I'm like, David, you're making me nervous, man. I need you to get in the bed. Everybody's quiet. They looking to see what you're going to do. What's the problem, man? And he's like, Mosley, don't worry about it, man. I'm not running. I'm not going anywhere. I'm like, man, you're still making me nervous and nobody's saying anything. And so I go over and I talk to Rayvon and because he's not really associated with anybody. He's so weird that he doesn't care what anybody thinks. And I'm like, Rayvon, what's going on, man? And he's like, Mosley, the two white kids, they've been beefing all day long and they want to fight each other. And they figure that since you went here by yourself and you all small and weak and frail and probably can't break up nothing, that this is the best time to fight. And I was like, you right. That's genius. (laughs) And I'm wondering, like, why aren't they fighting already? And then it hits me. Daniels, these kids don't want to fight. They just a bunch of little punks. It's like, that's right. It's time to use this. And then I say, you know what? Y'all want to fight? I'll give y'all 30 seconds. Y'all can scrap it out. Everybody's eyes bug open. And they're like, yes, it's going down. They weren't backing down at all. They were getting ready to go for it. And, I, <laughs> and I'm trying to pump the brakes like, no, 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 no. I was just kidding. I was just playing. And they were like, no, Mosley, you already said it. You got to stick to your word. And for some reason, I was like, yeah, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> but I'm coming up with all types of excuses. I'm trying to bat it down, like reasons why they can't do it. No, you can't do it. 30 seconds. No, that's too long. And it was like, well, give us 20 seconds. No, that's too long, too. How about 15 seconds? All right, 15 seconds. That's not bad. <laughs> But then I, I got another excuse, like, well, 15 seconds, who's going to break it up after 15 seconds? And then, like, the, the bigger kids, 
the bigger black kids, they were like, we'll break it up, Mosley. When you say stop, if they don't stop, they'll have to deal with us. And I'm like, oh, man. They're defeating me on every turn. (laughs) And I ran out of excuses. I'm like, all right, go ahead. (laughs) Somebody get a timer out. (laughs) And they start scrapping for about 15 seconds. And 15 seconds goes by. And my whole career is flashing before my eyes. And I'm like, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get suspended. I'm going to get sent to jail for child abuse. (laughs) Because somebody's going to get a black eye and they're going to see it in the morning and they're going to ask and somebody's going to snitch. But 15 seconds is up and nobody has a black eye. And everybody says, like, the guy who wanted to fight who's sitting on the end of the footlocker, they were like, he, he lost. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, it's over now. Let's go to sleep. And he's like, no, I'm not going to sleep. We got to have a rematch or I ain't doing nothing. I was like, oh, my goodness. Give us 15 more seconds, Mosley. I was like, all right, go ahead. And they scrapped for 15 more seconds. But then he wins that round. I was like, oh, man, come on. And then the other guy was like, we got to have a rubber match. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Got to have a rubber match. And they have a rubber match. And I forgot who won. I was just glad it was over. (laughs) But then it just started a whole... A whole avalanche. Now the, all the black kids, they want to fight, and they're calling out other people. Like, come on and fight me now. And I'm like, no, you can't call people out. If they agree to fight, that's okay. But if they don't want to fight, you can't make them fight. <laughs> and it's just a whole fight club situation. And they're fighting, like, through half the night until they just got tired. And everybody went to sleep. And I was like, oh, man. I'm definitely getting fired in the morning. And they wake up in the morning. Nobody says anything. I go off and I'm expecting that when I come back on like Monday or something that they're going to be like, come to the side. We need to talk to you. Heard you were letting kids fight. You're fired. The police are here. (laughs) But it didn't happen. And like maybe like a year goes by and I, I get I've been there for a while now and I get some more respect from the kids and like every once in a while a kid like walk up to me and be like, Mose, you give me 15 seconds. And I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But like a year later, I'm right back in that same cabin for some reason. And it's a whole different group of kids. Like usually they're only there for like a year. Not even Rayvon is there anymore. And... Same situation, two kids, just been beefing all day, but I've been there for a while now, and, like, they're not going to talk me into some fools just, like, letting them fight. This other kid, he just really wants to fight this other guy for some reason, and he walks, he gets out of his bed, and he walks across the room to this other kid's bed, and the other kid's in the top bunk, and he's trying to fight him. Like, rule number one, that guy has the high ground. Are you stupid? (laughs) And just like I thought, the guy in in the top bunk, he gave him a two-piece, pap, pap, (laughs) and sent him back across the room. And now everybody in the cabin is laughing at him like, ah, that's what you get. You shouldn't have tried to walk up on him like that. That's what you get. You should have stayed in your bed. And this guy is extremely mad, and he's sulking. And I'm thinking it's over. Like, ah, that's what he gets. 
And I go on vacation for like a week and I come back and they're like, Mosley, we need to talk to you. My bosses. It's like, what? What's going on? It's like kids talking about you let some you let some kids fight. I was like, what? Lie, 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 lie. <laughs> let anybody fight? I mean, that guy got out of the bed. I mean, I just didn't report it. <laughs> That's the only problem. And I got suspended and all this other stuff. And then that kid, he actually ends up running away. I don't I think they caught him or something like that. But there's a reason why they make rules. And there's a reason why Fight Club has two rules. Their first two rules are the same. And those rules are we don't talk about Fight Club. Let OM help you get the word out on your service, product, right. or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. center stage. Any slams? Done two slams. So a veteran, uh, we, uh, we sometimes get accused of having an overly male presence. What can I say? I'm, I'm pretty male. But, uh, but um, Beth's going to take care of that for us. All right, Beth Shelton, everybody. So we're clear the person that usually accuses them of the overly male presence is me. Uh, I mean, I'll own it. It's true. Okay. So I'm Beth. Hi. Um, I do moms. That's what I do. Uh, not in a dirty way. I am a, it's very professional. I'm a therapist and, uh, this is how I share my vulnerability since people are always really vulnerable with me. Uh, I specialize in maternal mental health and perinatal and postpartum mood disorders. So it's really lighthearted, fun stuff that I do. Um, I talk about infant and pregnancy loss, um, birth trauma, adjustment issues. I love what I do. It's my life's work. And I'm very honored to share the spaces that I share with the women every day. Well, five days a week. Um, it's a sort of unique specialty that I have, and I've spent a lot of time and quite a bit of money in traveling, getting these trainings and these certifications and these papers, and uh, often I'm asked why I do this, or how did you come to do this, or like, what, how did you stumble into this specialty? And the thing is, is I, I don't think you stumble into a passion. I think that you're led to it, and I know that I certainly was, and in preparing for the story, I, I, a light bulb kind of went off for me, and I figured out when it all started. And it started nine years ago. It started nine years, four months, two days, and about 22 hours ago. That's when I became a warrior. She was due the 26th of December. The significance of this is not that it's the day after Christmas. It's the day after I was due to be born, which was the 25th of December. All my life, and my mother is here in the audience so she can totally vouch for what I'm getting ready to say. All my life, I said, no way in hell am I ever going to have a Christmas baby. Never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever. It's the legit worst time of year to have a birthday. Any Christmas babies? You Right? Okay. 
You're in the club, right? Okay, it sucks, guys. It sucks. Here's the thing. Don't give somebody a birthday Christmas present. It's bullshit. You would not do that in June, right? You would not go up to somebody in June and be like, here's your birthday Christmas present. No, no, you fucking wouldn't. Don't do it. So all my life, I said, I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to have a Christmas baby. So it turns out that my ex-husband and I um, had lots of problems, but fertility was not one of them. And a couple of months after we said, hey, let's have a baby, I was pregnant. And uh, she was due on the 26th of December. Like her mother, she was three days early. On the 23rd of December, I gave birth to my first Christmas baby. So we're clear. Three years later, I gave birth to my second Christmas baby on the 21st. The story is not about his birth. It's about hers. Uh, my ex-husband was, well, we were married at the time. Uh, we lived in Morgantown, West Virginia. The company that had transferred us from Memphis to Morgantown was now transferring us back from Morgantown to Memphis. So I was very, very disinterested in uprooting myself in the middle of a pregnancy and decided to stay in Morgantown and let him travel back and forth. So I spent about 90% of my pregnancy alone. I liked it, actually. I got to really relish and eating all of the cheese that I craved, which was, so we're clear, all of the cheese. Um, I put some weight on in that pregnancy. Uh, it was 75 pounds of deliciousness. Whatever. Right? It happened. I, I mean, whatever. I don't, I don't care. It was delicious. It, fuck it. Um, I read all of the books. I took all of the classes. I watched all of the television shows. There was this one particularly amazing one, and it was called House of Babies. It was on Discovery Health. It came on at 5 o'clock in the morning, which worked out nicely because in addition to the booze and the fun and the sushi and the lunch meat that I had given up, I had also stopped sleeping. So I was awake at 5 a.m., and I watched the show, and it was set in a birth center in Miami, Florida, and it was run by a Jewish midwife from the Bronx. I don't remember what her name was, but she always made a big deal about being a Jewish midwife from the Bronx. I don't know why. And it was a 30-minute long show, and typically in that 30 minutes of television, there would be maybe two or three births, and they were, they were births, right? They were just women having babies in a birth center, and there was no, like, emergent gurney rushing down the hallway, and there was no bells and no whistles and no nurses and no scrubs and no oxygen tanks and no, like, people freaking out. It was just women having babies, and I thought it looked pretty cool to do it that way. And because uh, I was alone a lot, and I didn't have anybody to tell me to the contrary, I was like, hey, I unmedicated birth. Fuck it. Uh, I'll try. It sounds... Like an interesting time. So I got a midwife uh, in West Virginia. Their birthing policies are actually more female-friendly than they are in Tennessee. So y'all just sit with that for a second. Um, a birth center and a midwife were both immediately available. So that was... Actually, I could have gone to two birth centers in Morgantown. But whatever. Okay. So I chose a midwife, and I went and I did all of, the, all of the stuff, and I committed to two things via House of Babies. One was this unmedicated birth concept. Uh, the other was, the, it's hard to describe. Okay, it's not really. It still sort of freaks me out. Okay, so there were these women that maybe every third episode, the baby would be coming out and they would like pull the baby. I can't do it with the microphone. Hold on. Yeah, okay. They would like pull the baby out, right, of their own vagina and put her up on, right? I'll put her up on her chest. And I was like, 
No, I, that's, no, 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 hell no, that's not a thing that I'm going to be doing. Like, I'll unmedicate it all day long, but I'm not touching the baby. Like, it's just, it's not going to go down that way. So I, two solid commitments, no drugs, no baby touching. So my water broke at four o'clock in the morning, um, exactly like it does on all the movies. So that actually, so we're clear, that's a really, really rare occurrence. It doesn't usually go down like that, but mine did with my daughter. Um, and it woke me up out of a dead sleep and, and I walked to my bathroom like this because I was really convinced that I was peeing on myself, but I knew that I wasn't. And I uh, came out of the bathroom having passed a significant amount of amniotic fluid. Y'all, this is going to, I'm just going to go on and talk about birth. So vagina, perineum, amniotic fluid. Uh, I won't reference the placenta. So just do whatever you got to do to get comfortable. We're going to keep going. Okay. So I, I walk like this to the bathroom and I come out, and my ex-husband is, is sitting up in the bed, and his facial expression can only be described as though he had just seen, like, a ghost get attacked by a zombie that was eaten by, like, a rabid bunch of wolverines. He was freaking out, and, uh, which was fine. And I, I called the midwife, and she tells me, just, yeah, you know, eat some breakfast, take a shower, whatever, go to the hospital, we'll see you later, get there before breakfast. Okay. So I took a shower and ate some breakfast and moseyed on to the hospital and I got there before breakfast and it was a pretty chill experience, that part. And I walked into the hospital room and I met Sarah. Sarah was my nurse. Sarah was from Florida, where she was really used to seeing natural unmedicated births. I hate that I said natural because I really hate that term. Getting a baby out of your body is natural. Um, It is. Keeping a baby in your body is not natural. Okay, so... That's how it works. So unmedicated. I apologize for that slip. Uh, I looked at Sarah and I was like, hey, no drugs. I don't want any drugs. And Sarah was like, okay. And for 12 hours that I had her on her shift, it never came back up. Never once did she ever again ask me if I wanted drugs. Never once. She did at one point say, do you want to get in the shower? I was like, huh, that sounds kind of good. I remembered this part of a birth class that I had taken. Um, took all my classes with the same woman. Her name was Jeannie, and I refer to her as my baby guru. She's a pretty amazing human being. And Jeannie had said in a birth class, you're a mammal, right? We're all clear on this. We're mammals, okay? And sometimes, often, mostly always, when mammals birth in nature, they want to do it in a private, secure space, Right? A deer will seek out a thicket. A bear might likely go to a cave. It might be that when you're in labor, you feel like you want to go hide and protect yourself so that your baby can't be eaten by predators. I'm sure this part's going to shock you, but I'm like really extroverted and totally gregarious. So I thought there was no way in hell that I was going to want to be quiet during my labor. Well, as it turns out, that's actually what I prefer. I don't like to talk to people when I'm laboring. I've done it twice, and I can confirm that this is not what I'm into. I don't want anybody to touch me. I don't want any, I'm kind of like you, actually. I don't want anybody... It's <laughs> one of my best friends. Um, I don't want anybody to come in my space. I just want to feel protected and safe and alone and quiet, not my MO normally. So I get into this shower, and I'm pretty sure that I spent about seven hours laboring. I'm pretty sure. I mean, it was a long day. And I, I liked the way the fiberglass felt on my cheek. Because it was cold, right? And that felt really good. And my belly was 
about the size of a VW bug. Like, I was really pregnant. And there was this one spot underneath, imagine there's a big belly here, and underneath, about right here, is where all my contractions would go. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if it was probably her shoulders or something. She's probably punching me from the inside. That would make totally sense for her character. But So there's this one, she's a great kid. So right here. And so I would hold the shower head like on that location on my belly whenever I would have a contraction. And it, it just, it offered some relief and some peace. And, and I spent most of the day that way. About 7 o'clock that night, shift change happened. I got a new nurse, this time Jennifer, also uh, super supportive of natural birth. And my midwife came to check on me. It's the first time I'd seen my midwife all day. And then we started sort of having this, um, we can call it banter, but really it was more of a very immature and ridiculous argument about the fact that no one had checked my cervix all day. So we had no idea how dilated I was. Um, I knew that because my water had broken, nobody should putting, be putting their hands inside of me, right? Because that would introduce uh, some bacteria to my amniotic area that I didn't want. I read that in a book, and so it had to be true, and it was. Um, also, like, it's, it's weird to just force women to have their, your hands inside their bodies without their permission. Uh, I'm digressing. Um, so we, we had a conversation that kind of like this. Beth, we really need to know what your cervix is. No, you don't. Beth, we don't know where you are with labor. Doesn't matter. Beth, we really need to check your cervix. It would be very helpful for us. Nope. <laughs> In retrospect, I don't think my midwife liked me very much. Um, Jennifer, the nurse, bribed me, though, because I can be bribed. She was like, hey, do you want to go get in a bath? At this point, I didn't even know the hospital had a bathtub. And so I was like, yes, I do. I do want to get in a bath, Jennifer. And she was like, okay, let us check your cervix. I was like, fuck, okay. And they said, okay, Beth, help us understand. Why is it that you don't want us to check your cervix? And I said, okay, I'll tell you. Yesterday, incidentally, it was also my birthday, and uh, I was at a two. You checked my cervix in your office, and I was at a two. And they were like, yeah. I was like, I've been in labor for 14 hours. If you check my cervix and I'm at a four, I fucking quit. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired, and I'm in pain, and, like, I'm hungry, and I just want to have this baby. And if you tell me I'm at four, like, I'm out, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And then it went sort of like, but what if you aren't? But what if I am? But what if you are? But anyway, so they bribed me. They convinced me to check my cervix. They did check my cervix. If you've never had this done, it's a really terrible experience. If you have had it done, solidarity. Um, I was at a six. Jennifer, at this point, dons her cheerleading outfit. And she's like, oh, my God, you're at a six. That's great. I was like, okay, why is that great? And she was like, because you're getting ready to go through transition, and that's the hardest part, but it's really quick. It's the quickest part. It's really hard, but it's really quick. Okay, so I'd read a shit ton of books, and I read, took all the classes, and I watched all these television shows. I had zero idea what transition meant. None. So I was like, all I heard was quick, right? I'd been laboring since 4 o'clock in the morning. I was fucking tired. And she said, quick. So I heard, quick, what's quick? How quick, quick? How quick? Well, it depends. No, Jennifer, no. If it depends, that means it's not quick at all, doesn't it? So they put me in the bath, and uh, true to form, I wanted to be alone, so I kicked everybody out of the bathtub. And I, y'all, really, I was like 220 pounds when I checked into the hospital. I was hugely pregnant. Uh, that wasn't all baby weight either. Uh, apparently, she was not like a 45-pound baby, but um, I was in this bathtub, which is this long fiberglass bathtub, and everybody left, and I was cool, and I was like, chilling out in the water and it felt really good for the part of my body that it could get to and then transition hit 
So we're about, what, 60, 40 women, men here. So I would assume that at least, what, 45% of us have experienced transition. For those of you that haven't, I'm going to do my best. I want you to think of an orifice. Women, if you have a vagina, I want you to think of a vagina. If you don't have a vagina, then let's think of another orifice that's close by. (laughs) I want you to think about your assholes. I want you to imagine that at some point, for no reason whatsoever, 12 to 15 little tiny men, let's put them in about a half an inch taller, crawling inside of your asshole, carrying on their shoulders are little garden hose, like the one you till a garden with. Okay. The garden hose have been sitting in hot fire embers for like an hour. All at the same time, these 12 little guys, they take their garden hose and they put them at the edge of whatever orifice you're thinking of and they pull really hard all in the opposite direction at the same time. And they do this for a minute. If you're lucky, you get a two-minute break in between. If you're not lucky like me, you get 45 seconds and that goes on between 15 minutes and two hours. I would like you all to go home and thank the people that gave birth to you or gave birth to your children. You might have had no drugs. So this is really what the shit felt like. They get me out of the bathtub because I scream really loudly. And the, of course, the hospital's under construction through this whole time. So to get the water to heat back up takes like an hour or something. So I'm pacing around the hospital, going through transition the whole time. I would walk for 10 feet and then just sort of crumble to the floor. And the nurse would catch me or my ex-husband would catch me. And they finally get me back in the shower. That was how they got me out of the tub. Okay, it's okay. We'll get you back in the shower. It's okay. And I was like, please, please, please. So Jan, my midwife, came to me while I was in the shower. And this was probably about 9 o'clock at night. We might have been in labor since 4 a.m. And Jan comes to me and she says, I think it's time to have this baby. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, Really? She's like, yeah, no, I think it's time. Where do you want to do this? what do you mean? She's like, well, where do you want to have the baby? Where do you want to give birth? I was like, wait, I get to have, what? I get to fucking choose, like have an option about this? She was like, yeah, what's going to work for you? I was like, Jan, I don't, I don't know. But I really don't want to get back in that bed. Like the lights are really bright and it's really loud and all these people are standing over me and it's freaking me out. And I, I just don't want to get back in the bed. That's all I know. I'm in the shower while we're having this conversation and she says, well, do you want to stay here? I was like, in the shower? Can I do that? Well, sure. Yeah. If you want to stay and have the baby in the shower, have the baby in the shower. I was like, huh, that's something. Okay. Well, yeah, great. Let's have the baby in the shower. She says, okay, good. I'll I'll order a birthing stool. So, okay. I'm going to describe a birthing stool to you. Have you ever been to like a pizzeria that they put this little metal rack on the table and then they come out and they put the pizza on top of the little metal rack? Okay. So the metal rack is like grown-up size, except it's, you know, maybe two inches around in metal. But that's what it looks like. It's the, you'll never eat pizza the same way again after this. <laughs> You're welcome. So she gets me the birthing stool at some point because I was sitting like, you know how hospital showers, they have the, the benches that fold down, okay? I'd spent most of my time on this. And at some point I was like precariously perched, like holding on to the thing with my huge belly. And they moved me onto the birthing stool and... And Jan weighed, at this point, probably about 250 pounds. Jan was, Jan was a, a larger woman, and the area in between the basin of the shower and the toilet was about 18 inches. And uh, Jan 
fit herself in between the toilet and the shower. And I can honestly say I'm not sure there's ever been a moment in my life where I felt more safe. Right? Like, I knew she wasn't getting up. (laughs) I knew she wasn't getting up, but also, like, I knew that she was going to help me have this baby. I actually didn't think that was supposed to be funny, but I'm glad it was. So I knew she was going to help me have this baby, and she said, okay, like, whenever you're ready, you can try pushing. And I was like, oh, well, how do I do that? She was like, you have to push. I was like, "Uh, okay, really, I'm going to need more information. And she was like, okay, just act like you're pooping. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can do that. So I I started to push, and everybody's sort of gathering around. And at this point in my birth, a lot of these details are really, really foggy. Because when you're birthing and there's nothing else going on in the way of pain management, because we're mammals, we have a tendency to get back into our limbic brain, which means we get really, really zenned out, right? Like it's super, um, I can't really describe it. It's almost as though you're, you're out of your body, but you're in your body and, and everything is taking over and, and you don't have any control over what's happening. And so I'm back in my limbic system and I'm in my sort of mammalian self and I'm bearing down and I'm pushing this baby out of my body and my eyes are closed and I'm in this shower. I don't even know who's in the bathroom and I'm pushing and I'm pushing. And then all of a sudden I feel this sensation right on the edge of my vagina and my perineum. And it hurt a lot, Um, like a lot. And Jennifer, my cheerleader, is in the background and she says, Oh my God, there's her head. Reach down and feel her head. Reach down and feel her head. Reach down and feel her head. And so in that one second, I reflected back on House of Babies and I knew that I'd made this other commitment to myself where I was like, yeah, there's no way in hell I'm going to reach down and feel this baby because if I do, I'm going to freak the fuck out and suck the thing back up into my clavicle (laughs) and all of this is going to be over. And so I came out of my trance, right? I'm sitting on this like pizza birthing stool and... Jennifer's screaming and like doing a pyramid in the background and and Jan's, I imagine, very uncomfortable. And I looked up and my eyes bugged out of my head and I said, Jennifer, I can feel her fucking head. (laughs) And then I went back into my limbic system and uh, a couple minutes later I was holding my baby because it took like four pushes and apparently I was made for birthing. My grandmother always said I had birthing hips and she was right. So there's a thing about like when a baby's head is, it's called crowning. In the birth community, we call it the ring of fire because (laughs) it is. That's like the edge of that second, right before a woman gives her baby to the world, right? Like when she's inside of me, Inside of my body, I get to protect her. I get to protect her from all of the schoolyard bullies and the boyfriends that'll break her heart and the teachers that'll be mean and the grandmothers that'll give her too much candy. (laughs) I know you don't. (laughs) That's my mom. She does like stuffed animals, though. So um, maybe not candy. Yes. But we're right there on that edge. And there's something about, like, you can't go back, right? You can't go back because you're stuck. You're not going anywhere. (laughs) 
And it's a, it's not a moment that you're aware of when it's happening, but when you reflect back on it, you, you really do recognize that like that was the last second where your baby was all yours, right? That was the last second where your body was her home and that's where she was safe. And, and after that's over, like you become a different kind of person, but that's not why I was a warrior that day. It's not because I had birth without drugs. Um, I will say, though, that was a super really cool experience. I'm super glad I did it, and I liked it so much I actually did it twice. My son was born at home. That's how much I liked it. Um, it doesn't make me cool, though. It doesn't make me a badass. It doesn't make me better than anybody else. It's how I had my babies, and I'm down. Whatever. The reason that that experience made me a warrior is because of the work that I do and the passion that I have and the life that I live and how in that space I was safe. I was listened to. I was trusted. I was given choices. I was respected. I was honored. Space was held for me and I didn't even understand why. And that's my job. That's what I do like every day is I hold space for women that maybe didn't have the experience that I had. The universe led me to this place. It parted seas for me and gave me journey. I didn't have a doula. I didn't have a birth plan. I chose natural birth because of a fucking television show. <laughs> okay? That's what I did. But it worked. And here I am exactly where the universe wants me to be. Spill It Podcast is a joint production between Spill It Memphis and the OAM Network. For more information, go to spillitmemphis.org and the oamnetwork.com. Spill It Podcast.